right. Do turn to that passage in Philippians 2, if you have your Bibles or your app with you. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be. Today is, in the Christian church, Palm Sunday, the day we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem triumphantly, fulfilling the Messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 about the Messiah entering Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the praise and shouts of his people. This would be the beginning of what we call Passion Week, not passion and how we typically think, think of that term, but passion from the Latin word pati or P-A-T-I, meaning suffering. Jesus would enter Jerusalem received by the people as their Messiah to the praise and worship of the people and by the end of the week be crucified as a common criminal, seemingly in defeat. But if you know the whole story, the cross was his place of victory putting death to death. Planning our Easter series, uh, Kendrick asked me to focus today on the humanity of Jesus so that next Sunday we can focus on the deity of Jesus. It's Easter Sunday. It's a big deal in the church. It's a big deal in the uh, South for churches to have Easter services. So invite someone next Sunday to attend this worship gathering with you. Invite a guy Friday. I've invited several times, so pray that he and his family will come. They need... Uh, a church family in their life. But I want to spend some time examining the humanity of Jesus revealed in the scriptures, but most of our time talking about why it matters, why it matters. The human nature of Jesus referred to uh, refers to the reality described in verses six through eight of Philippians two, where Paul writes, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. Instead, he emptied himself By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You also see the humanity of Jesus referenced in places like John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. So the Word Was God, skip down to verse 14, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we now know that we have the full revelation of God about Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed, was never created, as referenced in John 1, 1 through 3, and when the fullness of time had come, at the right time, Jesus, still fully of God, took on flesh, the flesh of humanity, in the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Mary conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit a, a baby, the Son of God, taking on flesh, the virgin conception. That's really the miracle. The, the, the virgin birth is not the miracle. The virgin conception is the miracle. From that point forward, Jesus progressed and developed within the womb of Mary as any other human baby develops within the womb of their mother. Jesus was born in Bethlehem like any other baby would have been born in that time and place. Contrary to the Christmas hymn, uh, Away in the Manger, he did cry in the manger because he was a baby and wanted to be fed and had no way to communicate with his mom other than cry. He was hungry. He slept. He needed to be changed, which meant he, yep, he was truly human. The only difference between Jesus and every other human who's ever lived is that he was also truly divine. 
which showed up in many ways. One way is that in his humanity, he never sinned. I could tell you more, but you need to come back next week to hear that. We don't know a lot about the early years of Jesus, but once his ministry began, we know much more about who he was and his human nature shows up again and again. He slept, he ate, he walked, he talked, he cried, he needed to be alone at times, he engaged in relationship, he had biological family and friends, he was angry, passionate, humble, he loved and was loved, he was also hated and despised and rejected. He experienced the full spectrum of humanity except for sin. Isaiah 53 gives us a few more details. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. There's nothing to indicate that Jesus looked any different than any other person. In fact, in 2015, Popular Mechanics did a study where they tried to uh, figure out what Jesus looked like. And so uh, they took what we know about, uh, uh, that we discovered in archaeology, they took forensic anthropology, these different sciences, and they combined to create this image. Now, what we know for sure is Jesus wasn't white. He didn't have a British accent. He probably didn't have feathered hair or mullet, and he, and he certainly didn't glow. He was just a normal-looking guy. They think that the average height of a man in the first century Palestine was 5'1". So that's about Sarah's height. Could have been a little taller, could have been a little shorter. But that was what he appeared, how he appeared to people. Truly a man. This was really not up for debate during his incarnational ministry. Like No one walked up to Jesus and said, are you really a man? Like they, they knew he was a man. They actually knew his story and criticized him, ridiculed him for it because they knew the scandalous nature in which he come into the world. Oh, your mom said that she didn't have relations with Joseph before they were married. God made her pregnant. Okay, sure he did. In fact, in a passage like John 8, one of the most contentious passages between Jesus and the religious leaders, they made fun of this. We weren't born of sexual immorality. Nobody believed in a virgin conception or virgin birth in that time. They knew he was human. What they struggled with in the Gospels, his incarnate ministry, was, is he God? Is he the Messiah? And what did Jesus say? I'm not going to tell you. You have to come back next week, and we'll answer those questions. It was only after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, the birth and growth of the church, the first generation of people to see and know him and touch him physically, after those people died and went to be with Jesus Subsequent generations of Christians began to struggle with the humanity of Jesus. I mean, think about it. They're looking back. They saw everything he did in his divine nature. It would make sense for them to say, was he really human? I mean, we're sharing these stories of this man who did all that he did. Was, was he really human? And false teachers rose up to create these other ideas that he, he wasn't really human. And the church had to wrestle with this for the first 300 years until they, they, they got together and they came up with ways to describe Jesus was one person with two natures. Jesus was truly man, truly God. And, and since then, Orthodox Christianity has been marked by this belief that Jesus was truly man, truly God. In fact, you can tell who isn't Orthodox Christian from the groups that take that and corrupt that by either doing away with his deity or doing away with his humanity. But why does it matter then for his human nature to remain intact? Why is this an important doctrine to maintain? There are numerous ways we could think through that this morning, but I'm hoping and praying and 
where I've been all week and asking the Spirit to speak this morning by focusing on two reasons it matters that Jesus was truly human. It matters for our justification and it matters for our sanctification. First of all, it matters that Jesus was a human because his humanity was necessary to provide for our justification, or more plainly, for us to get access to God that we don't deserve because we are sinful. He had to become a man, and he had to do the things that he did as a man. We see this in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. This particular section is considered by scholars an early church hymn. Paul wrote most of his letters within a couple of decades of the time that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. So if Paul is quoting an early church hymn, it would have been developed very early in the life of the church, and they're writing songs very early in order to maintain and pass along orthodox teaching about who Jesus was. And a lot of people think that's, that's what Paul is doing. We see in verses 9 through 11 of the hymn an incredibly lofty picture of Christ. In fact, it's hard to imagine a loftier vision of Christ. Uh, Verse 9, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ so exalted that literally every single knee will bow and every single tongue confess. Everyone. It says... Uh, everyone on earth and under the earth and in heaven, everyone everywhere, not just humans in our physical form, but spiritual beings as well. Those of us who, by God's grace, we already see him as king and Lord of the universe, and we want to bow before him. And we want to say, Jesus, you are Lord, you are king, you are the one that we're devoted to. And the ones who don't, on that day, they will. Everyone. There is no more Jesus hiding behind the flesh of a first century five foot one Jewish carpenter. This is Revelation 1 Jesus. This is Revelation 19 Jesus. This is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration pulling back the flesh so Peter, James, and John can see Jesus. So much Jesus coming through in all of his glory that everyone is bowing and confessing. So, pop quiz. Is there anyone on that day not bowing and confessing that Jesus is Lord, King of the universe? Good. Y'all passed. We debate goats all the time. Greatest of all time, basketball and football and actor and actress and movie and musician and ice cream and hot sauce and pizza and donut and coffee bean and coffee shop. And we go on and on debating what is the best. The greatest of all time donut is the one that is warm and hot and in my hand. Right? And we could spend the rest of this day debating what we think is the, the goat in all these areas, and we could present our case, and we would never convince everyone just in this room who our goat is. Whether, whatever the topic is. You might have a few who agree it's Krispy Kreme, and a few who think it's Blue Star, and a few who think it's Spud Nuts, and a few who think it's whatever. But no one would 100% agree on 100% of the topics about what is the greatest of all time. But on that day, when Jesus is revealed in all of his glory, there's no more debate. No one has any word against him. Everyone is convinced. Everyone is confessing. Everyone is bowing. This is the man. This is Jesus. This is the king. This is the Lord. He gets all the glory and the spotlight and the honor on that day. 
Why? What is the reason for this incredible scene of exaltation? What brings this about? Verse 9, first word, for this reason. Or your Bible may say, therefore. One pastor called this maybe the most important therefore in the Bible. For what reason is Jesus highly exalted to the highest place? Go back to verse 6. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on cross. That is the reason. Everything we remember and celebrate this week, that is the reason. That he would come fully God, truly God, and not use that, exploit that it says, or hold on to that, but he would willingly, lovingly lay that aside and take on the humility of humanity. That he wouldn't feel like I've got to cling to something that would not allow me to do this, but he would willingly lay that. The language is difficult in the original language of the New Testament, but the, the idea wasn't that Jesus wasn't God and he had to become God and then become a man. The idea was that he already was God and, and laid aside the rights and privileges of his divinity. He didn't lay aside his divinity, but he laid aside the rights and privileges. He didn't exploit that or use that and took on flesh, covered it in flesh veiled his divinity in flesh in order for him to come as a carpenter in the first century Nazareth and suffer as he suffered and humble himself as he humbled himself. This was revolutionary about Christianity. The Jews would never have allowed themselves to believe God could take on human form because God is big and mighty and can't be contained in the vessel of a simple man. The Greeks and the Romans hated the physical world. They were always looking to escape the physical world and just wanted to get to the spiritual realm. So there's no value in the physical world or the physical flesh. So why would any God do anything with the physical world? And Jesus becoming a man elevates not just the deity of Christ, but the humanity, the physical world, the flesh, to say there's value and worth in how we are created in the image of God. But it wasn't just that Jesus became a man and Jesus, uh, as, that God became a man in Jesus of Nazareth, but God became a servant in Jesus of Nazareth. Again, if we're writing the script, okay, you want God to become a man, all right, how about a uh, king? How about a warrior? How about a scholar? But a a carpenter? Just a blue-collar guy from a backwoods town of maybe 50 people at that time who ends his life naked and shamed and cursed, dying as a criminal? Like This is not a good plan, God. Why would you do this? But But it is a radical plan an unorthodox plan from our perspective. So what made this necessary? Why did Jesus have to become a man, a servant, who would humbly, verse 7, humbly, perfectly obedient, die a shameful, horrific, suffering death? All four of those things you see in that verse. He humbled himself, was perfectly obedient, became obedient, died a death, but not just any death, he died a death on the cross, which everyone in the first century knew what that meant. It's the worst way to die. No one wants to die on the cross. Why? This is where you have to kind of take a step back and see the story of Scripture from from a wider lens. God creates all things good, 
God makes a world in which the pinnacle of creation is image bearers would rule with him over creation back in Genesis 1 and 2. We would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with, with image bearers who are enjoying God and his good creation. And he gave us just one command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Enjoy everything, rule with me over everything, fill the earth with image bearers as you're fruitful and multiplying. Just don't do one thing, don't eat from that tree. And our parents in the garden, tempted by Satan to question God's motives, to believe the lies of Satan, that God was withholding something good, something else good from them, even though they had everything to enjoy. There's this one thing that God's hiding from you. They believed Satan that they would be like God if they ate the fruit, and they disobeyed this one command, bringing sin and death and destruction and chaos and sickness and pain and brokenness and suffering and separation into the world. And God told them, if you sin, if you do this, you break this one command, you're going to die. Why? Why does sin equal death? Well, the essence of sin, the essence of death, rather, is separation. That's what it means to die. You're separated from someone. God is holy, and to sin is to be separated, cut off from him. So you see this in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. They were cut off from a relationship with God. They immediately hid and were shamed because they couldn't be around God anymore. And he comes looking for them. Where are you? Now, he's God. He knows. He doesn't need to ask where they are. He's asking for them. So they will ask themselves, where are we? Why are we hiding? And all of a sudden, naked and ashamed. Why are we cut off and how do we get back? Could it, they possibly be good enough to make up for the sins they'd committed to get their way back to God? Could they get really serious about, about religiousness and do right things and avoid wrong things? Maybe they could build or create impressive feats of technology and, and, and science and impress God with their intelligence and skills. Like Maybe they could start and run successful businesses and God would be amazed and let them back in because they would be so valuable to Him. Or they're super artistic and God would love what they create as they paint and draw and sculpt and design. And, and, or they could just begin to serve others and be nice and help people out. Then maybe God would let them back in. Like, is any of that ever enough to overcome the separation that our sins have caused? In fact, they tried to solve their shame problem by covering themselves with fig leaves, just like we often try and cover ourselves. We try to many things, good things, to make us right with God. Now, we know our theology in this room. Nobody would ever admit to that. I mean, come on, I'm not trying to earn my salvation. But how often do we base our joy, our peace, our hope, and how we feel about ourselves on our performance instead of basing our identity on the performance of Christ? So when we're doing good spiritually, like we're showing up Sunday morning despite the whole earth coming apart yesterday around here. Lights are flickering. We're here. I feel good about myself this morning. So obviously God feels better about me now. And we're not doing good. We feel worse about ourselves. I hadn't read my Bible all week. I'm such a terrible Christian. It's a real sinister way that we're not truly enjoying the right standing God has made available for us only and always through Christ Jesus. Our good works, our skill, our intelligence, none of those things have been effective to fix what is broken inside of us. Sin is something we inherit. It's like a, something linked to a DNA in our, in our genes. We're born with as humans, and because we are marked by this curse, we cannot be accepted into God's presence. We are cut off. There's no way back on our own. We can't be good enough. We can't be rich enough or smart enough or good-looking enough or nice enough or kind enough 
or anything because we're infected with the disease of sin. But what if someone could come like us? Human. But where we failed, he never failed. And where we don't succeed, he always succeeds. And what if he could come and stand in our place and be able to say, you're right. They are sinful. They can't hide it. You see all the ugliness coming out of their hearts in their words and the way they treat people. The ones who think they're really good aren't really as good as they think they are. They're just comparing themselves to other people. They are through and through wretched. But they get in because of me, Jesus would say. They get access because of my work. Jesus would say, they get credit for my righteousness and I'm going to absorb the wrath of God for their sinfulness. So I, Jesus advocating for us, lets us in, gives us access back to God, which makes us right with God. And this access is only provided by Jesus. In uh, 1998, Jennifer's dad Got me and Jennifer and uh, her brother and his girlfriend at the time, now his wife, uh, tickets to an LSU football game. But it wasn't just any tickets. We got tickets every year through his, his oil business. The vendors would want to you know, help him out and get their, get their business. For this game, he, he made a special request, and he got us tickets to one of the luxury boxes. Uh, I had never been to anything like that. So when I get to the stadium, we have to go up an elevator. I had never been on an elevator in a football stadium before. <laughs> Going up an elevator, and we walked into this banquet room with these buffets of free food. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? You just get to eat this food? Does it cost any money? And you walk through this banquet room where all these people were interacting to these, these the rows of stands, like four or five deep, wasn't very deep, to sit in these seats that you know, were nice and comfortable. They had backs on the chair, and they were covered. So if there was bad weather, we wouldn't get rained on. They had TV monitors in the corners to show something. I don't even remember what it was. They had game programs. You didn't have to shell out five bucks for a game program. It was free. And, and the whole time I'm sitting there in this amazing environment, I'm thinking, I'm not really enjoying it because I'm like, I don't belong here. Like, somebody's going to come and tell us to leave. We can smell out you pathetic college students from a mile away. Get back out there in the bleachers where you belong. You're not supposed to be here. So I didn't really, like now, I'd be like lining up, going through the buffet five times and eating all the food. I'm just living it up. But at the time, I just, I can't enjoy this. I shouldn't be here. Now, how did we get that kind of access? We had to have a mediator who was a bridge between the guy who had the tickets and us, who knew the guy, could acquire the guy and give us the tickets. We couldn't buy them and we had no relationship. We had to have somebody stand in our place representing us to get what we couldn't get ourselves and then freely give it to us. And what made it even better, like more amazing, is is Tim and Tammy came to the game as well. But he could only get four tickets for the luxury boxes. So they got two tickets to the nosebleed section of Tiger Stadium, which is the worst place to sit. It's high. The players look like ants. It's scary. It's real steep. I've never sat sat up there before. But they humbled themselves and became obedient to the point of sitting in the nosebleed section so that we could go to the promised land and sit in the luxury box and enjoy the blessings of Tiger Stadium. 
This is the access that Jesus has provided for us that's way better than an LSU football game. And Christianity is a way of answering, are you near God? Are you on the inside? Or are you on the outside looking in? And the only way in to get access to God is through Jesus. He is the mediator between God and man. He alone has done everything necessary to represent us and provide a path back to a holy God because we don't belong. Because we are sinful. Jesus had to become a man to die for our sins, to make this way back, to reconcile us to God. God can't die because he's God. So how does God die for us? God becomes a man. And the human nature dies for our sins. Jesus fully identified with us, yet was holy, substituted himself in our place to take our punishment so that Jesus absorbed God's wrath for our sins and died in our place. All through Jesus, we get this access we don't deserve. Romans 3, through 26 spells it out clearly. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. So anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ by believing and trusting in him and everything he's done, you get the righteousness of God. Anyone. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presenting him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Got to be human to have blood. Received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So being declared righteous in God's eyes doesn't mean we're not also sinful. We are also sinful. But he makes the ungodly godly by declaring us righteous because he sees us through Christ. And that's why we have access. And Jesus had to become a man to make that possible. Now, our justification is not super easy to see just in Philippians 2. There's other passages you have to look at and think about Scripture. But it's, it is easier to see in Philippians 2 passage our sanctification. So why does it matter that Jesus was human? For our justification, he was human to provide access we don't deserve to God. Second, Jesus was human for our sanctification. Because Jesus was human, he provides power to live according to his good purpose for our life. Because Jesus was human, he provides power to live according to his good purpose for our life. We are saved and given access to God through Jesus for a purpose. Lots of places in the Bible, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are these people so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into light. We are saved and made this people by God's mercy, so we will proclaim to the world how amazing he is. You see this also in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. 
We live as God's people and live life according to God's design for life, according to the good purpose for our life. And you you see this in this passage. Therefore, in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, my dear friends, you've done a good job obeying, so I'm not around anymore. I'm going to be gone, so in my absence, keep obeying. The way Paul writes it is, work out your own salvation, which doesn't mean earn your salvation, but live out the reality of your salvation. And if you need any more motivation, he says in verse 13, for it is God all along who is working in you to will and work for his good pleasure. So Jesus has done everything necessary for you to live this life of obedience. And remember, God is at work in you anyway to give you the desire and the ability to obey me. In and of yourselves, it will be lacking. But God is always working to give this to you. And we live then that life God has designed us to live. And the scriptures are full of what this life looks like, but in the immediate context, it becomes really clear what one application looks like for for this church. So go back to verse 1. Paul begins this whole section. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete. By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out for not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The Philippian church, a church known that mostly had it together, they were healthy and brought much joy to Paul. He said there in verse 12, you've always obeyed, you've done a great job. They had this one issue, this lack of unity rooted in a lack of humility, a selfish ambition, and a conceit. This was so known to them, Paul actually named, we think, the two people that seemed to be centered in, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, also I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. These two women... Can you imagine we started naming names on Sunday morning? These two women, Paul calls out by name, that had contended with him for the gospel, were in some kind of disagreement that was affecting the entire church. Paul's command to the entire church, not just these two women, is to become this fellowship of unity and love and togetherness that no longer marked by selfish ambition or conceit, to pursue this kind of sanctification that would be a demonstration of What? Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I'm calling you to live in this way just like Jesus lived. He is the model. He's not just a model. He's more than a model, but he is at least a model of what God's life looks like in human flesh. The whole motivation and ability and power to live this way is because it's how Jesus lived in the flesh. It matters that Jesus was a man so we could have access to God we don't deserve and so we could have power to live the life he's called us to live, to be a humble, loving, unified people marked by our unity more than our selfish ambition and conceit. This is only possible, yet always possible because of the work of Jesus for us, to make us right with God and to set us free from the power of sin.
For it is God who's working in you. It is God, brother and sister. God, brother and sister, who's working in you. God doesn't work in everyone like this. He only works in his people like this. It is God inside of you. Not oppressing you from the outside, but God doing what only God can do, coming up in you into the very essence of your being to will and work for his good pleasure, for his good purposes. This is how amazing our God is when we are his people. And so every time you come face to face with the reality of the commands of Scripture, when you see how Jesus lived and you know he was a model for us and how we live, and you look at what he did and you're like, how am I going to do that? And kind of just shake our heads like, how do I obey that command? How can I love my enemies? I'm struggling to love people that are my brothers and sisters in Christ who don't really love me. And you want me to love my enemies? How are you, how are you going to expect me to turn the other cheek? Somebody says something about me and I'm, I'm just supposed to take that? How can I lay down my rights for someone else's good? I'm an American. I know my rights. How can I get that low to serve that person? How can I possibly empty myself to serve them? How can I risk my status? How can I say no to this sin that I've indulged in for so long? It just has become a part of me. And I can't imagine life without this sin. How can I repent and ask forgiveness from a person like that? How can I love the one who's hurt me so much? Are you serious? How can the crossing ever become a church marked more by genuine warmth and kindness and humility so that it's evident to everyone and anyone? We are Christ's people. How can we ever overcome our insecurities and our awkwardness and lay aside all of those excuses and simply in humility look out for the interest of others and value the interest of others and care about others being loved well? How can the Crossing Church ever become more diverse in all the ways we really want to be diverse? To be an accurate picture of the kingdom of heaven in our city. If we can't love and embrace who we already are and who we already have. How can the Crossing live out our identity of, as family and it not just be the brokenness of family, but the love and the warm embrace of family. How are we ever going to get there? It seems sometimes impossible. Like We know these are issues we deal with, and if we could pick one passage, because I'm telling you, we can't fix it. As pastors and elders, we can't, we can't come to you and say, do this, don't do that. 
is not enough. We can't take people through enough training where we behavior modify everybody so they'll start jumping through the right hoops and doing the right thing. It's not enough. The Spirit of God has to come and God has to get up on the inside of us to will and work for His good pleasure to make us that people. So we would genuinely demonstrate the power of Christ, the person of Christ, in the words that we say, the embraces that we give, the insecurities and the awkwardness that we overcome, where we genuinely see other people as brother and sister, and I'm embracing you fully. I'm not holding on to everything that's keeping me from embracing you fully. I'm giving you all that I am because Christ gave us all that he is. And there's one passage that would help us dig deep and see this truth and reality and get a passage deep in us. It would be a passage like this. If by God's grace, we would become this church described in verses one through four because of what Jesus has done for us in verses five through eight, we would truly have something distinct to offer our city. We would truly be loving who God has given us and we would be loving those that he wants us to go pursue. We would be loving those who are hard to love and we'd be inviting those who are difficult into our lives. We would be taking care of the widow, the orphan, and the alien. We would be loving people who are different than us and don't see eye to eye like we do. And we would be marked by the humility and the love of Christ. Whenever we come face to face with the hardness of obedience and we don't see any way we could possibly change, Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He succeeded where we fail. So our obedience isn't to earn or purchase God's favor. We already have it. Our obedience is, in fact, empowered by God who's working in us to will and work for his good purpose. And so we live this out. We live this reality out. Where is it hard this morning? Just praying for the Spirit to speak to your heart. Speak to my heart. Where is it hard to live out this reality in your life? In the life of our church? Like maybe you struggle to really believe you are accepted by God through Jesus and you're always just living defeated and beaten down. The enemy's voice about how pathetic you are is winning over God's voice saying, you are a dearly loved son and daughter of our Father in heaven. Always because of Jesus. Maybe you struggle to really enjoy your right standing with God through Jesus. And for you, the Christian life is just a grind. And there's no joy. There's no rest. There's no peace. You're just grinding it out because that's what you think you have to do. Maybe you struggle to obey and take God's grace for granted because you don't feel like obedience is really necessary. Jesus did everything, so I'm free to do nothing. I'm still good because Jesus did everything, right? This morning, the Spirit needs to say to you, work out your salvation. Get to work. Or as Paul said later on in Philippians, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul works incredibly hard giving his life away for Christ. Why? Because Jesus has already given his life away for Paul. Brothers, I don't consider what I've made, uh, that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. So this morning, see the reality of Jesus as a man, living the life we fail at, dying the death we deserve so we could be right with God and empowered to live as God's people. He is sufficient. He is enough, and He is worth it. As our musicians come, I want to just take a few moments of silence to let the Spirit speak words of truth to your heart that you need and to speak the words of the gospel to your heart that you need to respond to that truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come. And you suffered and you bled and you died for us so that we could live and we could be your people. We could give our lives away for the good of others, for the glory of Christ. Wherever we need the gospel to intervene in our hearts and minds this morning, I pray you would come and help us to respond in repentance and faith. Do this work because you love this city and you love the nations and and you love those who are far from you more than we ever could. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.